you hear about the school to prison pipeline, and it's, it's like a buzzword at this point. People talk about it, but it's not really understood how directly it's tied to literacy. About 20 years ago, Department of Justice put out a report, and they were trying to say, how can we reduce recidivism? How can we get these young people to stop coming back to jail all the time? And what they said was, first of all, you got to keep them from coming in here in the first place. And delinquency and criminality and illiteracy, it's not related. It's a cause. It's welded to reading failure. Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and Lederic Horn, the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. Today, we have Kareem Weaver with us. I am not giving no introduction. I'm just going to start this thing and let him introduce himself. I have been waiting to have this conversation. Welcome, welcome, Kareem Weaver. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Now, um, I, I recently saw your YouTube video where you talk about what does the research actually say about reading and literacy? So talk to us a little bit about what the actual research says. And then I want to delve into um, how these curriculums and so forth are biased and, you know, how our black and brown children suffer. And actually, Brother Kareem, would you mind just telling us a little about, about oh, who okay. you are before oh, you go right. in? <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. So so um, I'm a black man. I'm a husband and a father, a uh, longtime educator. I'm, I grew up in uh, Richmond, California, which is basically right next to Oakland. And I uh, went to Morehouse College, went to University of South Carolina graduate school and uh, worked in the Department of Juvenile Justice for a while, which was where I really started off my journey on literacy uh, at Morehouse with the Students for Children of Incarcerated Parents. And then at uh, University of South Carolina, where we, you know, I basically was a, an assistant principal in a juvenile justice facility. And I saw firsthand what goes down uh, or the end result of what happens when our babies can't read. Uh, so from there, I, I taught for about 15 years and it was a principal. And then I trained principals, trained teachers, did the system stuff, and then, you know, worked for the NAACP, uh, Oak Alliance of Black Educators, and now started a nonprofit called Forkham, where we're basically trying to get our kids to read. We're trying to really make sure the publishers do what they're supposed to do, which is no joke. The uh, school systems, uh, you know, educate parents, the whole nine yards. So I work with the state NAACP and the Oakland NAACP, and it's all about reading. Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. I um, I was at the, I'm going to say COPA, Cooper, I don't know how to say it, but I was at their conference right before COPA. Actually, it was March. It was the beginning of the month, March 2020. They had their, their conference here in Baltimore. And one of the speakers, he works in the prison system. He's a teacher, juvenile justice, and, and he was talking about some things around literacy and what he sees. And, you know, then he had a um, they showed a snippet of an interview with a young man who mm -hmm. talked about why he was angry, you know, because he couldn't read and nobody mm -hmm. was helping him and he didn't know how to articulate it. And that was just like, wow. Like, yeah. Sis, let me tell you. So you hear about the school to prison pipeline and it's, it's like a buzzword at this point. You know, people talk about it, but they don't really. You know, it's not really understood how directly it's tied to literacy. About 20 years ago, Department of Justice put out a report 
And they were trying to say, how can we reduce recidivism? How can we get these young people to, to stop coming back to jail all the time? And what they said was, first of all, you got to keep them from coming in here in the first place. And delinquency and criminality and illiteracy, it's not related. It's a cause. They said it's welded to reading failure. And they listed all the things that had to happen to make that work, to, to say, listen, you got to give them all the elements, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary. They named it. This is the Department of Justice. They're saying, if you want to keep your kids out of jail, this is what you got to do. They laid it out there and everybody ignored it. In fact, they said a lot of people come in here with uh, neurological processing issues, namely dyslexia. They didn't name They didn't call it dyslexia, but that's what that is. And they said, but a lot of them come in without any processing issues. They just were never taught these things. So, you know, the Department of Juvenile Justice and the Department of Justice period, man, they've been hollering this for a long time, but we're so busy in education and in society doing other things and being distracted, we just ignored it completely. But that school to prison pipeline is real. And if the schools don't talk about it, the prisons sure enough do. And they say, look, if you don't want them in here, this is what you need to do. Make sure your babies can read. Yeah, I was a high school teacher for only two years. And my last year of teaching, I was at an alternative high school. Right. Where they this was the last stop. This was the last right. stop where you could right. get a high school diploma. They weren't teaching right. them nothing. We did a what is it? I ready assessment. And we had three children that could read. One was on the 10th grade. I think one was seventh grade. And then I think another girl was sixth grade. That was the highest out of 99 students. Mm -hmm. I went mm -hmm. through that thing multiple times. And all of these students had IEPs. Mm -hmm. Or, or I'm not using that anymore. You know, it, it fell off. The parents weren't, you know, knowledgeable enough to keep it going. But I'm looking at them and I'm like, where are they going? What, what job are they getting when they graduate with that piece of paper? Right. right? Because right. The, the kids told me, the kids said, Miss Miss Winston, we're in this class, but we don't get any credit for it. I said, yes, you do. It's on my schedule. Miss Winston, let me tell you, we, this is a holding place. Some of us don't have enough credits to graduate or leave the building. So they putting us in your class. I said, oh, that is not true. Every day I'm coming in with a lesson plan trying to teach. Finally, I go to into grade books, into grades in the grade book. And I said, this class is not coming up. And I'm asking for help and calling that one little guy. He comes up to my desk. He said, so you can't put the grade in, right? I told you we ain't getting no credit wow. for this class. <laughs> wow. But you know what, though? That says something. Our kids know the game. Oh, yeah. They know, yeah. They know the hustle that's going on. So when I was in South Carolina, so, and I'm sure this was totally illegal. I just, I, I was new. I didn't know any better. I was just trying to get the babies to read. The school itself inside of DJJ, their schools, it wasn't teaching them anything. And the people weren't trained to serve the kids how they needed. So I actually worked with local churches because, you know, in the South, they still have Sunday school. And so uh, these little old ladies, you know, with, they, with their uh, brochures, their tracks, they were like, we'll teach them. So I literally took volunteers, those who wanted to come, could come. They went to those uh, churches. Man, they basically adopted those boys and the girls. And they taught them how to read. They fed them too, gave them clothes, fed them, and taught them how to read. One boy timed out. You know, he was done. And he was like, Weaver, man, I want to go, but I don't want to go. That's the only time I ever learned something. That's the mm -hmm. only time anybody ever taught me something. Man, I, that blew my mind. He didn't want to leave jail. Because yeah. it was the only place where somebody actually cared enough and had the skill to actually do it. I, I mean, so that framed my whole, but the kids know the game. They know they're not learning anything. They understand, you know, how we set this thing up to not meet their, man, 
And we we keep playing and going around in circles. The kids been it long enough. They know. Yeah. They know what's really going on. Yeah, brother Kareem. You know, it's actually it's one of the things that I've I think is missing in many of our churches is that there should be some sort of ministry centered around literacy or um, supporting folks with uh, learning challenges. Um, so uh, Winifred started out by just asking about the science. So, you know, what, if there's a teacher listening, educator or families, what what do we need to know around the science around reading and how do we can improve uh, the reading for our young people? OK, so it's a couple of things on there. So first of all, uh, there have been studies done, neurological studies using MRIs to actually show different parts of the brain lighting up when things happen. So with when kindergartners when they begin to attach sounds to symbols, right? Different parts of their brain would light up on the MRI because oxygen was going to those parts of the brain. You actually turn the lights on, literally speaking, when you teach kids this sound letter associations. And oftentimes in our schools, we just don't do that. We assume kids are coming in with that. We don't teach it directly and explicitly, but the science actually says, no, 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 you gotta teach that because when you do things happen to the brain, synapses, things start to connect inside the brain. So that's on the science side and the research, there is an overwhelming consensus about the elements that need to be in place for an effective reading program. The federal government weighed in on it. Uh, There is a gentleman by the name of John Hattie who did an analysis of the research. You could think of it as a meta-analysis, a research of the research. Total about 300 million kids, right? thousands and thousands of study to get to get us a, a clear sense of what the research was saying. And what he did was him and his team drilled down to find out what actually makes a difference in terms of student achievement, of, of learning, right? Come find out a lot of the stuff that we spend our time on and our money on, it really don't make a bit of difference in terms of kids learning. Mm-hmm. Rest reading everything else. You know, when I show that list to board members, they go crazy. Like, you mean most of the time I spend on stuff? It doesn't even matter. I'm like, yep. So, so what are those what are those things that, that we're they, kind of wasting our time they, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so okay. So this is not going to be popular. And that's, that's, what's so pop- that's what's so powerful about Hattie's work. So they talked about, he talks about things like um, retention. So failing the kid, flunking the kid. If you're just going to do the same thing again, it don't make a difference, right? Now, if you're going to do something different, that's a whole different thing. But then there are things like family makeup, social economic background, culture, Right. So when people start telling you, oh, my gosh, the trauma, the this, the that, it's a single mom, it's the this, whatever, whatever the thing is that they 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 label as, oh, this is the reason. Research said that doesn't even make a difference. Doesn't even make a difference. Now, the stuff that does make a difference. Oh, here's another one. Small class sizes. Yeah. And that blew me. I was a former teacher. Look, we kind of know this to be the truth, but we just don't talk about it because it's not politically correct. It's easier to manage the job when you have fewer kids in the class. You can give them more attention. That's the truth. At the same time, I'd rather have my kid be in a classroom with 50 people when a teacher is on point, knows what they're doing, and is prepared, and has a great curriculum and program and all the rest, than in a classroom with six people, and they don't know what they're doing. You know, now that's like I said, that's not politically popular to say, but I'm just talking about what the research consensus says. It's not Kareem saying, it's the research. You go on there, John Hattie, visit, uh, Visible Learning, look it up for yourself. Charter schools. Now, I, I'm not anti or pro charter school. There are some good ones. There are some bad ones. There's some good traditional schools. There's some bad, tr- but it takes up all the energy in the room debating about the governance model and all this type of stuff. When the research actually shows that when you put it all together, they're about the same. Right. 
individuals moving your kid to a better school is good, regardless of how the governance structure is, whether it's district or charter, but just being pro or anti this or that, that's not what, what does matter. Fluency, vocabulary, phonemic awareness, and phonics. They bundle phonemic awareness and phonics together. They just call it phonics, but they, it's both. Comprehension, writing. Now, that's not sexy, but that's, ironically, that's the same thing the federal government was saying. That's the same thing uh, the Department of Justice was saying. Like, people have been saying this, man, for decades. It's just, you know, we're not paying attention. We're on some other stuff. We're too busy arguing about things that don't matter. What, what one uh, fellow friend of mine used to call the weapons of mass distraction. We yeah. get distracted on yeah. everything else. But the real stuff that our kids need from us, we stay silent on. So that's that's what the research and the science says. I like that. The weapons of mass distraction, because that that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And um, when you talk about the class sizes and, and the pandemic, right, my daughter was home virtual and this one teacher. I'm like, it's only five kids in the class. Like, come on. And my daughter said, well, I think I think she's just struggling with my daughter's only 11. She said, I right. think she's struggling with classroom management. <laughs> Because oh, she would hear me say that as a teacher, that I was, I, I would always tell myself I wasn't a good teacher because I struggled with classroom management. I said mm-hmm. it didn't matter how well my lesson plan was, if my classroom management sucked, class was a, a bust. Yeah. And I said, this woman only had five or six kids in here. Hey, hey, if you can manage your class, you can manage your class. When I was a classroom teacher, I had on any given day 45 kids in the class. The limit was 37, 35, but they always would put extra, but then other teachers would send me kids that they didn't want to deal with. And they would, and, and I had rows of chairs set up in the back with desks and everything else because we knew they was coming. No problem. They came in, did what they had to do. They was on point. Sometimes they would line up in the morning. I'm like, no, nah, you got to at least go to your regular class first. <laughs> <laughs> like, but we, I don't want to have to act up to come. And you know what? That's what a lot of kids are, are saying. Don't make me have to act up to get what I need. We start yeah. looking at suspension rates. Kids are talking to us. They know the game. They're saying, so what? What I got to do? Do I, to, do I have to throw this chair for you to send me to some special class? So, because most of our kids aren't actually referred to special ed for learning disorders. They're, they're referred to special ed for behavioral disorders. Right. Yep. right. But the special ed teachers, they know when they get in, they're like, man, look, they can't read. 80% of those referrals are really rooted in reading. So what we've set up, the systems that we've set up to support kids, the kids already, they understand a lot of it is just a bureaucracy. Can the kids get what they need or not? That's really the question. And if a kid, let's say a teacher has six kids, right? As you, as you mentioned, the bigger issue is, is the curriculum right? Does it align with the research to make sure the kids are getting what they need? Are the materials aligned? Are the assessments right? Is the culture right? You know, if you can't make bricks without straw, you know what I mean? So if the teacher is, is teaching from a curriculum that doesn't even have the components of early literacy that it needs, what are we doing? We're just warehousing kids. And in Oakland, for example, we had a curriculum. It didn't even teach foundational skills for 10 years. For 10 years, kids showed up every day. Parents sending their babies to school thinking they're going to get what they need. Keep them safe. Teach them how to read. We'll worry about the rest of it later. Come find out the materials they were using, the curriculum, it didn't even have in there the components needed to teach them how to read. Now, if you came in knowing the basics, knowing your sounds, knowing this, knowing that, all that, fine. You didn't have any processing issues, fine. Your parents taught you, you know, you could read when you came in there, it worked for you. Because when they said, 
well, it works good for comprehension. That means you already knew how to read in the first place. Yep. But if you need somebody to actually teach you what to do, if you need a teacher to directly, explicitly, and systematically walk you through it like the majority of our kids do, it's not for you. So that was a system-level decision, and that happens all across the country right now, all yeah. across the country. So the most popular curriculums in the country right now really focus on what they call balanced literacy, which is mm -hmm. a misnomer. When you hear balance, it sounds so good. Who wouldn't want balance? I want balance in my <laughs> right. life. Right. I want my kids to have balance, right? <laughs> right. They, they know how to market this thing. And so, but really what balanced literacy is, it's a derivative of whole language. And look, I'm not saying that people don't have good intentions. They, they have good, for the most part, educators have good intentions. Everybody wants kids to read. But some of the things in balanced literacy, the guessing of words, the three cueing, I don't care whether it's Teachers College and Lucy Calkins, I don't care whether it's, uh, like there's a lot of different curricula that aspire, that, that uh, align with that philosophy of instruction. It's not working and it hasn't worked. So instead of looking at it and saying, well, wait a second, why don't we think about doing it the way the research is? Instead, they turn it around and blame it on kids and their families. And when I tell you it is hard to redirect that and change that, my daughter, when she was in what, first grade, first and second grade, she was in a public charter school. And mm -hmm. I remember the, the, the reading specialist was working with her, right? One-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. This is before we did the IEP. This is their, I guess, their version of response to intervention right mm -hmm. and and the, the reading specialist is working with her and looking at tell her to look at the pictures and sent me the thing home i have oh, it because i'm a pack rat it told yeah. you all these things you can do as a parent how you can help them and of course when i got that then i didn't know yeah. all i knew is she wasn't learning to read and i'm like okay we're going to look at these we're going to have these books and she's going to look at the pictures and it's going to help her and here we are what is it she's going to sixth grade now and as soon as she even thinks about it, I'm like, no, you, use your strategies, That's sound right. it out. But That's she's right. looking at pictures. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it was like ingrained. And yeah. every time she gets nervous or a little flustered, you know, she's going yeah. straight to try to look at pictures and then tell me the word. I said, that don't even have the same letters. And she giggle now and she'll use yeah. her strategies. But it was hard to redirect that. That's right. Because it's reinforced from the time they show up in school. Now, imagine a child with that strategy. That, that That's their main way of reading. They go to eighth grade, they go to 12th grade, they get to college, you know, they got A's on their report card, then they get to college and they got this big text that they're supposed to read, ain't no pictures to be found. They're lost. i never forget I was a principal and uh, it was a first grader and she was just cutting up. This young little sister was cutting up and just tearing the class upside down. Went in the classroom to find out what was really going on. And uh, I walked over to her and looked at, the, at the, the word that she was trying to read and the word was stone. And, uh, the teacher came over and she said, what's this word? She said, rock. And the teacher said, no, no, look at the picture. Look at, look at what it says. This says home, alone, this, all the other ones around it kind of sound like they said, so now what's this word? She said, rock. The teacher was huffing and puffing, frustrated. She said, no, no, hold on. Just let's just think about this now. Look at all the rest of these pictures. Now look at this. What is it? That's not teaching a child to read. Mm -mm. That's teaching a child, you can call it Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, pressure luck, whatever the game is, but you got to guess something, but that's not reading. Now the child, now she's angry because not only can she not do it, now you embarrass her. Right. Now she's feeling insecure about things and the principles, she just felt bad. And so time I left her, I encouraged her, listen, sweetie, you can do it. Let's, we're going to work on this one-on-one. -on -one, da, da, da. She was in tears. And that's what happens with a lot of kids. So schools nowadays, they want to focus on social emotional healing and social emotional. Yep. And I get that. I get that. 
but you're damaging the kids and then going to heal them after that. How about you just stop damaging them? I've been in schools where they sit around a circle with a bowl and, and they chant and they hum to try to make it seem like, okay, so we're going to de-stress you. You understand you're the source of the stress. This, the neighborhood is not stressing them. They grew up in the neighborhood. It's when they get to school. When I uh, worked with the uh, UCSF Dyslexia Center, they told me, they said, when they work with a child, when somebody brings in a referral, a kid comes into the UCSF Center, they can't even really get to their dyslexia. The first thing they have to do is deal with the, the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. They said, so, because when a child goes through school for a few years and they have dyslexia and it's undiagnosed, it's traumatizing to the child. So they, they got to unravel that thing first before they can even get to the academics. And that's really, I mean, you know, I focus a lot on dyslexia. In our community, in the black community, it's not really talked about that much. Right. It needs it needs to be, right? It's a neuroprocessing difference. And really it's rooted in what you hear, auditory processing and, and how your brain hears sounds and does different things. But, but what happens is, so there's two parts of this. Legally, it's got some law behind it. It's got some federal law behind it. So you can, you can make the case that schools need to be giving kids with dyslexia what they need in tier one regular classroom instruction, not in the side room. I mean, if they have to get it tier two, okay. But, but, but they should be getting what they need in regular classroom instruction, tier one. That's the first thing, okay? And the other thing is, if you're giving those children what they need, then everybody's getting what they need. Right. Mm -hmm. There are some folks who say, well, the dyslexic kids, those are the kids who they're not smart. They'll, those are the kids who, whatever the label they want to put on it. So we don't want that. And they think of it as ghettoification of schools. I'm trying to tell you. She said, well, I don't want to go through that phonemic awareness and phonics. That's dumbing it down. Man, let me tell you something. Mm -hmm. The majority of kids, 65%, have to have it that way have to have it that way. It's got to be direct, explicit, code based. It's got to be some assessments to go along with it. And they will learn to read. The other 35%, the other one third of, of kids, they're advantaged by it. They're not disadvantaged. They're advantaged by it. Their spelling actually will get better. Their comprehension actually will get better. But the thinking goes, well, they'll get bored. They'll get bored. If, if, you, if they sit around and learn how to sound words out, they'll get bored. Let me tell you something. I've been around kids all my life as a teacher, principal, right, all, the, all the roles in the school system. And when kids get in trouble or when kids drop out or when kids uh, don't like school, I've never heard a child say, man, it's the phonics. They've been making me sign out them words. I can't handle this. I'm, I'm out of here. Signing out them words, deuces. Not one time ever. I don't care whether it's in an independent school, some of the highest in the country. I don't care whether it's a charter school, I don't care whether it's a traditional public school. I don't care if it's a, a, a Catholic school. I have never heard a kid say that. But what I have heard kids say is, man, I just can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. I don't understand. I can't do it. I'm frustrated. You know, it comes out in different ways. Some kids will say they're frustrated. Others kids will show you they're frustrated. Whether it's putting a hoodie on, whether it's not showing up, whether it's talking about everything else, their own way to distract you from the fact that they are struggling to read. In California, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a black daughter who is, um, she's 16, okay? Three-fourths of the boys in California, of the black boys, can't read. Now, I understand the science and the research 
But let me just tell you as a father and my girl, you know, she likes boys. She's a pretty young girl. She's smart. 75% of the boys can't read. What are the sociological implications of that? Right. And, and the only chance they, not the only chance, because God can make a way, but let me tell you this, systematically, structurally, in terms of our civil institutions, the school's not designed to set them up for success reading. There, there is no, there, there's no structure on the books. They don't screen for dyslexia. They don't demand that we follow the science and reading. So the only thing institutionally that actually is set up for them to learn to read is when they get incarcerated. Mm. Now, because of the First Step Act, if you catch a federal case, now not a state case, if you catch a federal case, you can't carjack somebody, a federal case, go rob them. If you do that, when you get into the, into the federal penitentiary system, they now will screen you for dyslexia. And they'll give you the help you need to get your GI. Kareem, I, I'd say that in my pitch when I'm pitching my nonprofit. And I'm like, why is the government waiting till our black and mm. brown boys, our black and brown children are in federal prison before That's we right. screen and treat dyslexia? I was That's watching right. the RFPs. I was so disgusted. I just wanted to see because then I said, who the hell got dyslexia? Who else got dyslexia for them to make this law? And I started doing That's my right. research to find out how it got passed, who worked on it. You know, and I found that man out in, was it New Orleans or Louisiana? Louisiana, Senator Cashley. Yes, and, and yes. Mayor Baraka, yes. and all them folks, all the folks, they got they got down. And so all these people who were doing uh, criminal justice reform, then these guys came in there like, listen, if you really, just like the Department of Justice said, if you really want to keep people from coming back to jail, this is what you got to do. Yes. Okay. Now, and, and, and I don't care, Republican, Democrat, I don't care. All I know is, so, so let me put this in another level. I have a nephew who learned to read in the penitentiary. Told me that's the first time they learned anything. So these laws, it's, it's, this isn't a game. This isn't a game. Actually got a GED and would tell me, uncle, you know, everybody was working, everybody was busy. You know, my dad was busy. Everybody was, and, and we're so busy living life and trying to survive in this country, you know, Half the people don't have benefits. You can't go get educational tests. I'm getting my daughter educationally tested right now. Man, this costs a five G's to get her tested because the school system wouldn't do. They delay, 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 delay. We've been saying this since ninth grade, actually since eighth grade. Now here she is a junior and we were like, listen, we got to do it on our own. We got to do it. We got to do it because she's dying on the vine. And I'm a teacher. I see what's going on. We got to get her tested. So between them hemming and hawing and spinning us around and running us through all the paces, you know, the red tape, all this, man, she'll never get tested. She'll never get the help she needs. We had to spend money that we didn't have, frankly, to go get her tested to find out what's going on. You know what? <laughs> Let me just say this. This is why I founded the, the nonprofit and why we're doing this podcast, because I said, here you are, an educator. You understand it. And look how hard you got to fight and the money That's you right. have to spend. Man. I was an educator. Within three days of my daughter's diagnosis, I was told I needed more than $22,000, right? Because I didn't know how to navigate the system. I didn't know there was options. I didn't know how to work this system. I swear, it feels like it's a a code that black folks just don't know That's is a right. way That's to right. do this. That's right. $2,000. I said, no, I'm going to help people that look like me because here I am educated, was in the school system. I called friends who were special educators, read over this IEP witness and said, oh, they're going to give her extra time. I said, well, extra time is not going to teach my baby how to read. That's they right. didn't need, they couldn't even help me navigate the system. You see <laughs> oh, what I'm saying? And then I, you, I you $5,000 
Then, you know, I, I became director of admissions of a special education school because I said, I need to be amongst people of a different socioeconomic status mm -hmm. to figure out how they're getting help. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Because now, you, you know, they're paying the attorneys. Let me give you some stats here in Baltimore City. Our public Baltimore City Public School is about 90 percent black. Right. 90 percent black. But 90 percent of white and Asian, I think it is East Asian kids get non-public placement. Let me say that again. Yes. Our public school system yes. is 90 percent black, but 90 percent of white and what is it? East Asian or yeah, East Asian get non-public placements. And for those who are listening and don't understand what a non-public placement is, here in Maryland, that's where the public school district will pay the tuition right. at a private, let's say, dyslexia school in the tunes of $38,000 a year. Put that number out there. The public school system is going to pay for that child to go to that specialized school. And here in Baltimore City, we got 90% black kids at their public school, but 90% of white and East Asian. Wilfred, you, you just... So let's go there. Yes, so go there. I, I didn't even know about non-public placements. I most parents don't. So those with money, privilege, and access understand the game. They got educational attorneys. They got this, that, and the third. And when they show up, they say, listen, you're going to have to give us what we need. My child has a, has a right for these services. You don't have the ability to do it. So you're on the hook to pay for this tuition. This I've gone to go visit some of these non-public schools. 35,000, 45,000, and the district is cashing them out, cash them out. Now, black folks, we sit up here saying, well, wait a second, my child doesn't have dyslexia. I don't want them to be labeled. I don't want them to be put in special ed. I'm, we're so busy with our, our concerns and our worries and all our phobias that we're not realizing we're getting left behind. We I didn't know either. I went to yeah. visit the school, right? We went to visit three dyslexia schools. The first one I, we visited was a non-public. We didn't even understand that that particular school, they had a speech language pathologist, they had psychologists, and they had um, OT on staff, all of this, yeah. because they were non-public and they were the most expensive. That's because they followed the IEP, right? right? And most people that went there were on a non-public placement. We didn't know that. My daughter's father just said, scratch it off the list. It's the most expensive. And if mm -hmm. she needs OT... You know, that's extra because we were doing OT outside. We were doing everything right. outside of the school. And so then later on, I found out about non-public placement. Later mm -hmm. on, I realized I should have had an advocate that first IEP meeting that's with right. me. I, it wasn't until I went to visit an attorney. I paid my little consultation fee and I was paying for outside tutoring. And he said, stop the tutoring. Mm. And, and I'm like, well, she's getting her confidence. She's learning to read. I didn't understand. It was just a consultation. He wasn't going to break it down for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I remember leaving there with my rolly bag full with my big, thick IEP binder crying because mm -hmm. I said, I don't have the money to pay for his retainer and then pay for the tutoring. But see, they that's how you set up the game. You prove that's you right. get the data to prove that's that right. they're not providing a free and appropriate public education. I that's didn't right. even know I was supposed to be getting a progress report at the report card that matched the goals. I said, well, what's mm -hmm. that? There was so much that I didn't know that they weren't doing. By the time I caught on, in my mind, it was too late. And so here's the other part of that. Black families, every year, whether it's an annual or biannual or triennial, they go in there for those goal sessions. You have some goals that they're supposed to meet. The kids don't make those goals. Mm -hmm. The last time you had a kid go to an IEP meeting and they said, oh, well, this year, you know what? We met all the goals. But they do it every year. And they never reach the goals and nothing ever happens. They just make new goals. No, no. They suppose if they can't meet the if they can't do the things that the thing says they're supposed to do, you have options. And sometimes those goals are trash. 
when I when I became director of admissions and I start reading these IEPs and I'm reading the reports. Now, I wasn't savvy enough to go in and tell them how to write it better. But I got savvy enough to realize this don't say nothing. This ain't saying nothing. (laughs) And so as, as parents, like you don't know and you don't know what you don't know. And so many black parents are in there advocating, advocating, getting mad. I'm going to go to the media, getting mad, getting mad, but not speaking the correct language. That's right. right? It's the data. I, I think I, I don't know if it was your show I saw, but it said that all decisions are going to be made by data. Regardless, right. it's mm-hmm. the data. And as parents and especially as black parents, we don't even understand that data. And how do we capture it? What are we capturing? What do we need to go in there and say? Right. We don't understand that. And I have to work with parents for at least a year. Mm-hmm. Right. They reach out to me. They contact us. And I tell them, this is what you need to do. Let me get you connected. I don't have the money. I don't have the money. I said, well, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Right. We, we're here to help you. This is what you need to do. It's a lot of work. You got to roll up your sleeves. And then they come back to me a year later. Oh, my gosh, Miss Winston. I didn't realize that I needed to do X, Y and Z. Right. And, and we don't know how to play that game. We, we don't know. It's a, it, literally it's a damn game. Can I, can I just jump in with a with a question? Because I'm imagining, you know, like uh, who the audience is. Right. And I can just see a parent out there who is maybe on the fence about getting their child diagnosed. And I think what we're, what we're talking about here is very valuable because I have said for years that that documentation is the keys to the kingdom. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, if we think that a, that a child has dyslexia, can you just very directly just talk about like the value of going ahead and having that evaluation done? Like, I understand the costs involved. I understand that we may need support around navigating the system, but just, you know, just a direct message around like, you know, taking that step. So I've been in that situation. Yeah. And I can tell you a couple of things, and I work with young people, but parents, if you're hearing me, the stigma of, of being in special ed and the expense of having your own testing done, I understand it's tough. I get it, both of those things. But you're talking about the difference between the system treating your child like a puppet and pulling the strings all throughout their education saying you will do this, you will get that, you won't get this, you don't qualify that. You're talking about the difference between that versus when you have that in your hand and you've had some formal testing done to be able to say, no, 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 no. This is what we're going to do. This is what this says. And so therefore, by law, you will do this, 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 and this. Here are your options. You can either provide them the support that they need and that they're they're insured by the uh, federal laws or you're going to give me a non-public placement for my child. And so it, it puts you and your child in a driver's seat. I, I know it's expensive and I know there's some stigma attached. I, I know. And especially when you're not really sure, like with my daughter, we don't know what's going on. We don't mm-hmm. know. We don't know. And so that's the thing. We When you don't know and the school doesn't know, it's kind of hard to sit here and say, well, we're going to pay for this expensive testing when it looks like it's just motivation or it looks like but the word I will give for them is, is worth its weight in gold. I'll give you a, 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 an example. When I was in college, I went to school with Ennis Cosby, uh, Bill Cosby's son. And he, he was a terrible, terrible, he was my study partner. Drove me crazy, <laughs> crazy, because he just low, easy going, laid back everything. Hey, friend, oh, man, drove me crazy. And he, his grades was terrible. D's, F's, 
you know, you know, can, can, I, can I just cut in? Because Go this ahead. is amazing to me as a black dyslexic, you know, uh, man mm -hmm. growing up and seeing Theo disclose that he had dyslexia. And yeah. now that you you were with the the actual yeah. Yeah, guy that what, inspired that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that that was the inspiration of it. But see, what happened was they found out he had dyslexia. Yeah. More, Morehouse, they actually. So they went through a process. They figured out and they sent him to a place called Landmark College. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All I know is all I know is when these <laughs> brothers went up there, they left one kind of way. When they came back, man, he was getting better grades than me. Right. I was like, what? He's like, man, they did this. They did this. They did the other. I learned this. He learned how to work with. So with the parents, what I say is for your baby's sake, all that struggling and all, all they, they, they need help. They need, it's not going to be a magic bullet. And the school say, oh, well, just give them more time. That's a hustle right there. Don't fall for that. That's the okie doke. Oh, well, just give them more time. Kids learn at their own pace. Oh, he needs more culturally relevant books. Look, not being able to read the story of Dr. King is just as bad as not being able to read the, the story of whoever else. It, it may be even worse because you feel like you should be able to read by Dr. King. I'm go get your baby tested. It's going to cost. If there's anything worth that extra job, if there's anything worth that side hustle is getting the money to do that. Yeah. Afterwards, you can quit. That's that's yeah. when you go around and pass the hat to the family. That's when you go to church and say, Reverend, look, my, my baby's struggling. I need to get an education tested. Can we pass it? That's when you do what you got to do. Right. 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 So it, it, the other thing I want to say is it, on the same topic. So with Fulcrum, with the group I, I work with, we actually, we man, we running like an underground railroad. Basically, we take, I'm, we're taking kids who can't read, they're dyslexic, and we just give them the help they need. We quietly, because it's politically, it's, it's tough. We just say, but man, some kids, it costs 3500 But there's one family, they got two kids. Man, this cost us over 50 Gs, $50,000, over $50,000. And they're just now to the point where now they're in range because they waited till 10th grade and 8th grade. And, and we had to sit here and say, if we don't help this young Black boy and this young Black girl, he's in 10th grade, she's in 8th grade. What's going to happen to them? They're reading at a second grader, a first grade level, as a 10th grader. What's, what, what are we talking about? We got all these big ideas about programs and are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Man, this little black boy and little black girl need your help right now. What you going to do? Be real about it. You're either going to help them or you're not. But since they waited so long, since the system spun them around for 10 years, now the problems are deeper. The longer you wait to get that test and the harder it is to unravel, not just with the reading, but then also the, the trauma, the, the, yeah. the, the self-doubt and all that. So to parents, not just do it, do it yesterday. Don't wait until, you know, a $2,000 concern becomes a $50,000 concern. And on the positive side, there's a brother down there in Long Beach, a professor, Dr. Dr. Anderson, Dr. Keon Anderson. We had him come up for a little workshop he was in ninth grade reading the first and second grade level, had dyslexia. You know, it was all bad, all bad. Got the help he needed from one teacher, mm -hmm. actually taught him some foundational skills and, and gave him some support, identified as being dyslexic. Now he's Dr. Anderson. Now he's a he's a business owner. Now he's published 15 books. Now he's a professor at Long Beach. Now he's a reader for Cal Berkeley when they when people apply for, for their school. I'm, I'm saying don't let them snuff out the genius of your child because they don't know. They don't know for, you know, the information is power in your hands. Go get the test and do what you have to do to get it. That would be my message. You know, and I think and I think also and that and thank you for that, because that was that was really powerful and just on point. And I, and I think it's also one of the things that made a difference for me. I 
And I was in a self-contained special ed class, third grade through 12th. I get to a college program, local community college support program for students with uh, learning disabilities. And to have a, a counselor actually explain to me, you know, despite all of these years of thinking that my intelligence was less than, that part of what came along with this diagnosis is that I was average to above average intelligence. And, you know, and I, I don't put too, too much weight in the IQ scores, but it was right there in my documentation the entire time. You know, so um, I, I actually I, I wear, you know, my dyslexia as a badge of honor um, and and I welcome anyone who's who might be a part of that that group. You know, so if your daughter gets through that testing and she says she's dyslexic, then I want to be the first to welcome them to the right to the club. Right. right because there's some amazing, amazing people of many different races, but particularly black people who are dyslexic, have been dyslexic and are doing amazing things. Let me tell you something. Whether it's Will Smith, or yeah. Kobe Bryant, right. or Muhammad Ali. That's it. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> Octav- Octavia Spencer. Don't let people tell you that your child is dumb. Mm-hmm. Okay? that's Because that, that, that's the message that they get and the message that parents get. And we have to be, have some healing in our own community. Because when we get frustrated, we say some things to our kids sometimes that it's not good. Why can't you be more like your sister? Okay, why can't you do this? Or why don't you do that? And, and they, they start giving us these messages. The schools give us the messages. We don't know what to do with it. And then we put it on the kids. We got to stop that. We got to change how we view the learning disability, right? These white folks is paying people to, right. to, to, to get these right. identifications and they don't even have anything going on, right? So as a community, as a culture, but, but you know, it's not only our fault. Because what, what, what did they say? Um, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We ain't got mm-hmm. nothing to start with, right? So, so culturally and, and over time, they have put that on us, mm-hmm. right? That, that you want to hand out. Like, like Black folks is lazy and don't want to work. We were fine when we were working for free. You mm-hmm. loved us then. Mm-hmm. We Our were workers, the right? most skilled people, you know? <laughs> right. Until right. we want to get paid, yeah. right? So <laughs> as a community, we got to be okay that my child learns differently. Or guess Sorry. what? I'm going to get this assistance. Right. They always want to put out their black people the most on welfare. But we know that's not true. Right. We know that's not true. So so culturally, we, we don't want to ask for help. We don't want to get the supports that we need. Meanwhile, other folks who don't even <laughs> shouldn't even be getting them are, are getting those supports and, and just moving on ahead. Well, let me add on to that and talking to parents who may have a child who's dyslexic or some other processing issue going on or difference going on. So to be clear. 42% of the self-made millionaires are oh, dyslexic, yeah. yes, are dyslexic, okay? So, and at the same time, when they study folks incarcerated, about 40% of them are dyslexic. So you have the power in your hands to support a child, to promote their genius. That genius, that creativity is going to come out and, it, it want, it, you know, one way or the other, it's going to come out. You're sitting on brilliance. I know it may be tough to, to see right now because the messages you get from school and the frustration and chatter and all that. But if 42% of self-made millionaires are just, so when you watch Shark Tank and you see Damon John, oh, he's, he's dyslexic. Matter of fact, three of the five people are dyslexic That's on that right. program. So, the man who so, just went to the moon is dyslexic. Man, they took all, the flight, they, Richard Branson took the flight they, to the moon. That's right. That's or right. Space, that's right. out of space, space. rather. Yeah. Out of space. Uh, what's the man who made the, uh, Steve Jobs dyslexic. So, so here's the thing. In our community, we have got to get past the stigmas mm-hmm. about intelligence. The old definition of dyslexia, which a lot of educators still go by, by the way, says that when there's a difference between intelligence 
and a child's ability to read. That's what they used to go by. And so a lot of our children didn't qualify and still don't qualify because if you don't think the child is intelligent in the first place, then officially there's no problem. Mm. There's no gap. There's no issue because, yeah, they can't read, but we don't expect them to read anyway. Just, just give them more time. You have got to be the one that holds the line and say, no, no, no. My child is intelligent. They're a regular child or even more brilliant than the regular child. If you don't hold that line, the system will devour the child from old definitions, because it takes about 10 years for information to get into the mainstream of education. Most of them are still going by the old definition. The other thing is, there are some folks, and, and, and I have personal experience with this, who fight against screening for risk of dyslexia or educational testing. You know, it's the tinfoil hat crowd. And, and look, I love a good conspiracy theory is like anybody else. But I'm going to tell you this. People say, well, look, the screeners, you know, they make the facial recognition technology and they make this and that and down the road and this. Look, man, I hear all what you're saying. Our kids are getting locked up. Our kids are being put in cages. Now, when you have migrants coming across the border and, and the kids get held in cages, everybody goes crazy. What about our kids being locked up 24 seven yep. for, tw- for 20 to life in cages? And the root cause of it is they can't read. For whom do we cry? Yeah. You've got to be your child's advocate and don't let anybody scare you, whether it's for some mainline arguments or some conspiracy theories or well, I don't want it to be stigma for special ed. Okay, fine. You, you, you think that, but guess what? When they go through this system and nobody knows what's wrong and nobody cares and they just swept under the rug, you'll wish you had something to say. You know what? Now I know what's going on. Now I know what's going on. You wish you had something early so a kid could understand what's going on. Like Dr. Anderson said, the messages he got was that he was dumb and unintelligent. That's what mm-hmm. he got. Yeah. It wasn't until somebody said, no, no, you, you, you're dyslexic, sweetheart, and this is how it goes. And this teacher said, this is this is how you're processing things. And so this is what we're going to do. All of a sudden, the world opened up for him. You have to be the vanguard for your child. These old definitions, these conspiracy theories, you have to do what's in the best interest of your child. Can I ask, because I, you know, I came up during the, the old definition. What what is the what is the new definition? What is the, the, the right definition that we should be using when it comes to dyslexia? It's a neurological processing difference that has its root in auditory connections. Sure. So we have to make sure that our children are hearing things well, mm. hearing things. Can they attune to the sounds of language? And then because they attend to the tunes, do they then develop the skills to crack the code? So with dyslexics, they're processing information differently. You may say one thing, they may hear something else. How you say a word, they may be hearing something different. The vowel sound may sound differently to them, right? And how they put things together may be a little bit differently. So it's just a matter of how children process information and how they auditorily pick up sound. That's really what it is. It's an auditory processing disorder with neurological in origin. For the folks out there, there's nothing wrong with your child. We all think differently. We all have ways that we learn. We all have ways that we quote unquote process information. It doesn't mean your child is broken. It means your child has a different way of hearing things and processing information that the school is legally bound to serve them. Right. Okay. But you have to make sure that they do what they're supposed to do. That's your job. If you don't can do I, it, there's no help coming. And can I circle back? It was something that um, that we touched on earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. 
uh, both uh, Winifred and I, when we first met each other, we were both connected with um, predominantly white run organizations that had a focus on dyslexia, mm-hmm. learning disabilities, ADHD. And um, one of the things that I think I've gained a greater appreciation of the more that uh, we've gone through the episodes in this podcast and had these conversations is if you're an advocate out there and you are serious about supporting people who are dyslexic and you want that work to be effective in the black community, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us are being labeled with emotional disabilities, behavioral mm-hmm. disabilities, yes. your programming, it, it, it seems to me, and this is the, you know, what I'd like you to weigh in, in on is that your programming is going to have to make the jump outside of the dyslexia label, because I'm, I'm appreciating that that is a bit of a label of privilege, that not a lot of us are getting that. And you're going to have to reach out to the folks who are probably misdiagnosed, right? Or honest to God, dealing with those emotional issues that are, you know, a trauma response to being treated poorly by our school system. So, you know, like to, to those advocates who might be listening, you know, who, who care about, you know, like creating programming for Black people who are dyslexic, they're going to have to look at more than just dyslexic people. You think I'm, I'm, am I right on that? Yes, they do have to look at more than just dyslexic people. First of all, that's a big group. You're talking about yeah. from 15 to 20% of the population. That's, that's not small. Um, but I would say for the advocates, a, cu- a couple of things. One, there are allies out there in organizations that you may not be used to working with. Mm. You have to consider working with them. I, I work with groups you know, I work with the NAACP. I work with Decoding Dyslexia and IDA International Dyslexia Association. I work with Latino advocacy groups. I work with, I mean, all across the board. You have to find people who are willing to put literacy first. Okay. And have strategies around how to make sure that the districts, and here's the key, the districts and the charters, what are you doing to ensure that the greatest number of children learn to read. That's the language. It's it's the greatest number. You can use any program you want to when you're going to get some kids. The question is, how can you ensure that the greatest number of kids learn how to read proficiently? When you focus on that and you rally other groups, other nonprofits, other advocates who are focused on that, that means you have a multi-ethnic, a multicultural coalition, and you can go after it. You can connect with parent groups. You can connect with whomever, with churches, whomever. Right. And it just so happens that students with dyslexia are the canaries in the coal mine. Right. Right. You know, a thing where if you look in the coal mine and you see the burden fell out, something's wrong. You just watch that canary. And if the canary's doing good, it's oxygen down there. Y'all men can go down in there. The workers can go down in there. That's like the dyslexic kids. If they're doing all right, everybody's all right. But if you see that they're not getting what they need, they're populating uh, the worst outcomes in your system. I guarantee you that another 50% of kids in that system who aren't dyslexic, they're not getting what they need either. So you gotta be willing to work with those soccer moms. You gotta be willing to work with whomever, because let me tell you something, people are paying big money to get their kids help, mm-hmm. okay? Even these folks who are super well off, they got a lot of money in the bank. It's not working for their kids either. And so the difference is that they're writing, they're cashing checks until the education attorney can get the district to pay for non-public school, they cash in checks to get the kids the tutoring and support and help that they need. They don't want to do that. That's probably the reason why they're paying those property taxes to live where they live so that they can go to a good, a quote unquote good school, but they're having to do that and pay on the side to get the help. You can partner with those people because they have money 
privilege and access and power. Their kids aren't getting what they need either. You walk in there with Becky, all of a sudden, I, listen, I, I'm sorry. It shouldn't be this way. Right. It should be the group of black folks can go in there and they're going to say, you know what? We respect you and your children. We're going to give them what they need. I got a newsflash for you. We can fuss, holler. We can yell. We can petition. We can do everything we want to. We still might get ignored. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, we, the groups I'm working with, we're considering all recourse, meaning the courts. We're considering everything. It takes all of that. All our, It's like another full-time job trying to advocate for your child. You get a couple of these soccer moms in there, you know, with an education attorney and whatever it is they got going on. And you stand right next to them and you say, mm-hmm, yep, that's right. Mine too. All of a sudden you see doors opening. It's like, what, what is this? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So this is one situation where they may not want to admit they have privilege, but you like, listen, come on in here. It's not working for your child. You know what? Mine either. Come on, let's partner. Let's work together. Let's get some for our babies. We got to be willing to partner with anybody who has the same issue, which is not necessarily dyslexia, but their children are struggling to read. It's literacy overall. Beverly Hills, California. Yeah. 74% of their third graders are reading and written. 74%. That means one out of four people in Beverly Hills, child can't read. With all the money, power, and access they got, one out of four can't read. Guess what? Uh, parent teacher association, you know, we're concerned about reading too. Let's go to the board together. And, and you get to feel good about yourself because you're doing it with black folks. You're a social justice warrior. Spin it however you want to, but I'm going to leverage, I'm going to borrow and leverage your access and privilege to help my child as well. So that's what I would say to advocates partner with whoever you got to partner with to make sure you get what your child needs. All right. Oh, that is just a nice note to end it on. That that was just awesome. Just so many jewels and gems dropped here, you guys. I'm just put it in the show notes. It's just too many. I was taking notes, um, but I just I want you to hear that it's okay to get your child evaluated. You know, having that data gives you ammunition. It gives you power, and it is okay if your child learns differently. I mean, I just found out I was ADHD, and people clown me all the time. You know, last time we did an episode, I think uh, Dr. Washington said, oh, Winifred, I could have told you after five minutes that you were ADHD, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so I'm still learning as an adult, like, wow, I'm classic ADHD. That's why I never remember this. My working memory sucks. Oh my gosh, that's working memory. And, you know, and I'm learning, but I've been successful. I have a graduate degree. I've worked. I've been a teacher, there right? But, but, but I wasn't identified and it's okay, so, so I want you to take those two things away, get them identified, right? Mm-hmm. I was different. When they said, let's identify my daughter, they thought I was going to be like, no, no. I was like, yes, let's do it because I'm not satisfied. I'd rather know than not know. That was my whole stance. This evaluation is going to tell me if something's going on or not. Although people told me she was smart. They told me what, what Kareem said. Oh, she's going to catch on. Yeah, give oh, her more time. She, she's going to give, give her more time. She's so smart. Right. I said, well, that's why I'm concerned. She is mm-hmm. so smart, but she's not reading. So I just want you guys to take that away, get them evaluated and let's work to remove that stigma. There is no shame in in learning differently. Tune in next week where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities.
The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.